think the most effective CEOs have come to understand leadership as sort of this balance point. You know, the metaphor that I think about is like riding a unicycle. You have to know the balance point, but then sort of flex, you know, side to side, forward or back, depending on the particular circumstance. So maybe there's a moment you need to be compassionate, but then three minutes later in a different meeting, you have to pound the table and hold people accountable. And I think if you understand that balance point, that's a way to stay kind of centered and confident and yet deal with the sort of crazy storms around you. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Welcome to Superhumans at Work by Mind Valley. I'm your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and before we get started, tell me, if you could change anything in your life, what would it be? Would it be your body, your career, your relationships? Thankfully, you don't have to choose. As a Mind Valley member, you'll get instant access to the wisdom of world-class personal growth teachers and programs that can evolve you in every way for just $2 a day. Are you ready to make a change? Start transforming your life today at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. I have an incredible individual, a fellow Canadian as well, joining me today, who's an executive leadership expert. And when I say expert, it's not just something he's added to his title. I think after when he wrote his first book, he interviewed more than get this 500 CEOs to write his book, Corner Office. He actually has worked in companies and been a managing director at Exco Group. He is someone that has really written three books on the topic, is really in-depth about it. And what I'm super excited about having in today is we're going to be covering some of the elements from his latest book, which is The CEO Test, Master the Challenges That Make or Break All Leaders. It was published by Harvard Business Review Press and What's really critical here is that even if you're not currently a CEO, maybe you're not aspiring to be a CEO, but if you're someone that's leading in any capacity, you're going to see that there's some key competencies that you can develop and that you can become aware of to understand where your blind spots are, where your weaknesses could be, where your strengths are, and how you can use all of that awareness to really maximize yourself as an effective leader. And this man has done the work, has done the interviews, has the knowledge, and he's going to share it with us today. Adam Bryant, welcome to Superhumans at Work. Thank you so much for being here. Great. Thanks so much, Jason. Appreciate it. I'm really excited about this, if you couldn't tell already, but I find the title itself is very fascinating, right? You call it the CEO test. And you know, a lot of us have like, especially if those who are in America, you know, they've had these, uh, what is it? The SAPs? What? No, the SATs. Yeah. SATs. You can tell I'm Canadian, right? So tests have been everywhere and it kind of gives us a benchmark to evaluate ourselves. So what got you inspired into, you know, writing something with a title of the CEO test? And do you think most CEOs today can pass that test? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll address the second part in a bit. But in terms of what inspired me to write this book, it was really trying to understand, like, why do people succeed or fail in leadership roles? Because, you know, if you look at the average tenure of CEOs now, it's, it's getting shorter by the day. It's down around five years. And a lot of people struggle in leadership 
leadership roles. And, you know, I've been kind of in the leadership space in different capacities for a dozen years now. And, and I think it's just the hardest thing to do. I mean, there's so many gray areas and complexities. And so just putting that specific frame on the question of leadership is like, why do people, what are the key reasons people succeed or fail in these roles? And then dot, 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 can we provide a kind of practical playbook to show people how to do it better? Not in terms of like a cookie cutter, here's a worksheet, you know, sort of generic three overlapping circles framework. Our approach throughout the book is we always say we want to start conversations, not end them because everybody's context is different. So we tried to hit that sweet spot of providing advice that could be useful for anybody. And you know, it's interesting because I actually was speaking to a CEO uh, who's becoming a potential client and just before this call, and it was very interesting because they kind of inherited the CEO role. The company was growing, some key people left, there were responsibilities that expanded. And now here he found himself in a kind of CEO role. And matter of fact, resisting to jump into the CEO role because they're wondering like, do I have what it takes? And what they're looking at right now was that, you know, the environment is changing fast. It feels like there's chaos and there was a lack of clarity and it's almost like a lack of understanding of what the role of the CEO is supposed to be. Because it's almost like if you've been trained doing a function within a team before jumping into a CEO role, there's a lot of these things that don't seem as do this, output that, do this, output that. So I'd love for you to maybe explain more on that. Like what are the key roles the CEO should be doing? And, and I will say, I mean, the, the job of the CEO has become infinitely harder. I mean, just in the last couple of years, I, I find this moment that we are living through, you know, it's, it's almost sort of breathtaking level of change. You know, somebody 50 years from now writing a book about the history of the corporation will have to devote at least three chapters to this moment we're living in. Because as a leader, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, a CEO, your biggest concern was maybe some noisy institutional shareholders. But look at all the changes that are, are unfolding as we speak. One is the changing nature of work. Like, how do you lead in a hybrid environment? Just the role of corporations in society. I mean, with George Floyd and Me Too and all these things. The, so many of society's problems are now rolling up to the front door of companies to solve. And it, it is almost like CEOs have to become like politicians. And at the same time, you know, the focus on uh, ESG. So you've got institutional investors demanding more from companies beyond just results. Employees, you know, we're at this moment now where employees want a voice and a vote in the company's policies. And how do you deal with that? And then the third big category is just the changing nature of leadership itself. I mean, in some ways, it was easier to lead in a command and control era, right? Like, just do what I tell you to do. But now you've got to have humanity, you've got to compassion, empathy, all these things. And I know that people generally don't feel sorry for CEOs. They tend to be very well compensated and then some. But I think we should acknowledge that just the, the role of being a leader, any leader, is just exponentially harder now than it used to be. I mean, you've just highlighted so many aspects that have changed that I haven't even considered. Because quite frankly, I always thought that the CEO had a lot more, you know, was supposed to be a lot more inward focused. But now we're talking about having such a public image that needs to be managed constantly. So it's like, where do you draw the line of what are your responsibilities? So yes, of course, they're very well compensated, but there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. 
Right. And in some ways, I, I often think of CEO on, on stage at an all-hands meeting or maybe in virtual stage, you know, in, in a company-wide Zoom call. And I think as a CEO, you almost have to be prepared for any question. I mean, I, I call it the whatabouts, right? Like people raising their hand, it's like, what about this? And, you know, maybe we make ball bearings, but what are we doing about the Amazon rainforest? There's this increasing kind of expectation on the part of employees. It's like, I care personally about this issue. And I think the company should care about it too. And so you have to be prepared as a CEO to, to deal with that. And, and the most kind of proactive forward thinking CEOs that I've talked to, they are very intentional about saying, you know what, as an organization, yes, we have to deliver returns for investors, but we also have to stand for something. And Maybe it's two issues, maybe it's three issues, but they will pick issues and say, this is what we stand for. And these are the actions that we're going to take to back up those words. We're going to invest in those. These things are what we stand for. And by the way, Jason, if you don't like them, you can go work somewhere else because it sort of cuts through that sort of what about, what about noise and just say, look, this is who we are. I know there's a million issues out there in society. We can't deal with all of them. We're focusing on these ones. And again, if you don't agree with those, you know, we invite you to go work somewhere else. So I think that's the only way to navigate that particular challenge. Well, with your permission, I'd love to jump into one of those key kind of test questions that relate very close to that. And it's this whole aspect of having the importance of a culture in the workplace. And I feel like that probably falls within the responsibility of a CEO, but it's, you know, there's been the culture words has been thrown around so many times and it's almost like, yeah, we have a culture. Look, we have a pool table. We can play ping pong. We have a beer on tap and a, and a chef. And it's like, People highlight culture as like the Google perks that kind of make the headlines. But I'd be curious to know, like, what really is a culture that a CEO needs to nurture? And like, how do they make that real? Your point is well taken. I made the, the word culture is super amorphous and fuzzy and people define it different ways. And I often think about it in terms of, you know, the basic building blocks for a lot of companies when they think about our culture is, you know, there's the mission, vision, purpose statement, right? That's kind of one exercise, very high altitude. Sometimes it defaults to, you know, stuff that you can make fun of on shows like HBO Silicon Valley, where everybody says we want to make the world a better place, right? But that's like one exercise. The other key exercise is we're going to go develop a list of values, right? The, the norms and behaviors that are important to us here. And I always like to frame things in terms of like, well, what's the bad movie version of that? And what's the good movie version of that? The bad movie version is just, you know, people get together an offsite and they just come up with a bunch of generic words, right? Like excellence and integrity and passion. And they put them on your employee badge and the on the wall in the headquarters foyer and nobody ever talks about them again. And what's really dangerous is that if you see the high-performing jerk getting ahead, behaving in ways that directly contradict the values, then that's going to make everybody cynical, right? So that's the bad movie version. The good movie version is that you're incredibly intentional about coming up with concrete behaviors that you expect of people. And ideally, they feel unique to your organization, like they kind of capture the DNA 
of your company and that, you know, everybody gets what they are, what's expected, and then you reinforce them at every touch point in the employee experience. So hiring, onboarding, quarterly annual awards, firing, you know, just so that people get, you know what, these guardrails are real. And I will tell you, I'm having interviewed now, like more than 700 CEOs often talking about culture. I've looked at a lot of these lists. I will share with you my favorite all-time value, which is the company that we go deep on a case study in the book is Twilio, their cloud communications company in Silicon Valley. And they've got a list of, I think, 10 values. One of them is, is called Draw the Owl. And the backstory on this is like years ago, this meme popped up on the internet. It's this sort of two panel thing about how to draw an owl. And in the first panel, it says, draw three circles and it's three overlapping circles. And in the next panel, it says, draw the rest of the owl. And it's a fully rendered owl. And there's a curse word in the middle of that, draw the rest of the owl. But the whole point of that is like, just figure it out, right? And this thing popped up on the internet and it went viral inside the company. And so they adopted this as one of their values. And the owl, you know, owl is now their mascot, but it is their shorthand. It's like the internal hashtag for just like, you know what, just figure it out. Right. And to me, we're in this era where everybody needs to draw the owl because there are very few jobs now where it's like, hey, can you hand me that playbook on how this is done? It's like, no, it's your job to write the playbook. And so to me, like that's an example of the specificity and level of concreteness of like, what does this actually mean rather than just like, am I acting with integrity and excellence today? Well, I love that. And Lisa value that's actually summed up with a great story. But you also speak about like a core competency that I feel like is so much needed typically in the workplace, which is kind of like, can you Google that? You know, like that's that kind of attitude that, you know, I've had some frustrations where I might have said that to a few coworkers and didn't go down well, but I felt very proud in the moment that I said it. And then there were times that I went to ask questions that I could have Googled myself, but that's beside the point. But nonetheless, here, what you're talking about is really translating it from the generic bad movie and really making it real. And I think it's beyond just doing those exercises. You need to kind of enforce it. And that happens through every behavior because I would assume the culture is going to take on a lot of the behaviors of the CEO because they're basically the ones to signal the culture, isn't it? Certainly. The tone is always set at the top. And I, I think the best leaders, even if they've come into a company that they haven't started, they find some way to tie a personal story back to, you know, even the pre-existing company's values. But just to sort of say why this is important to me, because we're wired as human beings to communicate through stories, right? And it's those stories, especially if you can recall something earlier in your life that as a leader, you could sort of send a signal. It's like, this is really important to me. And this is how I've lived that value. And this is how I'm not going to compromise on that value because companies get into trouble when they say they can get into trouble a lot of different ways. But one way they can get into trouble is by saying this is one of our values. And then they hit a crisis or something and they say, we're just going to put that in the parking lot for a little bit, but then we'll bring it back when we get through this. Right. So there has to be this sense of like, you know, those guardrails of behavior, they're like very thick and it's very heavy concrete and they're not going to change. Hmm. And as far as a personality, like if I'm going through a CEO test example, such as your book, what would be a litmus of like a CEO? Basically, you need to have a lot of, because you're going to be faced with a thousand decisions. And then you're going to have some decisions that might be easier to make if you didn't follow what the culture rule book kind of says. And so here, are we talking about having, is it courage? Is it, is it a tough skin? Like what would be that quality that we need to nurture? All those things. I mean, it's just having instincts and the sort of courage to do what you think is right. 
you know, if you're in an actual leadership position, if you're a manager, maybe you're having to follow the sort of company's policies, but you're in those decisions. The higher you go, I mean, the, the decisions just get harder, right? There's just more and more gray areas. There's no clear right answer. In almost any big decision you're going to make, you're going to anger and disappoint a, a bunch of people. But to have that courage or your convictions and always start with a simple question of like, what is the best for the organization? You need to recognize that leadership is not a popularity contest and you have to be okay with that. And I also think part of having the right temperament for being a leader is to be able to compartmentalize. I, I'm not sure we talk enough about this in society, but some people, there is a sweet spot there because you have to have like humanity and compassion and empathy and all those things, but you can't have too much of that because it's just going to chew you up inside making those tough decisions. You know, at the other extreme, there's a lot of bad bosses who don't seem to have any EQ or empathy or compassion. And, you know, they make a decision and move on. And who cares if a bunch of people are upset? You have to ask yourself, like, do you have that right skill to be able to compartmentalize in a healthy way? And I've seen people who, you know, are on either extreme. And I was a manager for 14 years. I probably skewed a little too much on this kind of empathy side. And I wish I was almost better at compartmentalizing. Mm. I think it's pretty clear if you're somebody that's going more on the scale of being like a bad boss, I guess the side effect of that is you might have like disengaged employees. They don't, they don't trust you. They don't relate to you when you're a little more on the other side where you're maybe showing a bit too empathy. What happens? Do you have more complacency in the culture? Like what would happen? To me, and again, having sort of lived this myself, is sometimes it's very easy. You know, I'm kind of a fixer personality by nature. It's like I want to help people. And so in a, it, it was very easy for a meeting with an employee to start getting into areas that I, I probably just should have held back and say, seen it more through the clinical lens of like performance, because I'm at a point in life where I really like sentences that begin with there's only two kinds of there's whether it's two kinds of companies, two kinds of employees, two kinds of people. But I do think there's a good framework to understand about there's two kinds of, of managers or leaders and the categories that I've seen myself and heard about. I think you can put leaders generally in two camps, one that are kind of more self-centered, right? Where, you know, they see their employees really just as assets to help them achieve their their goals so that they can get promoted, right? It's like, in effect, they see their employees like, what are you going to do for me? And I think the better bosses sort of say, well, what am I going to do for you? And they're much more selfless. And, you know, I think part of making good on that promise is like, I see a trajectory for you that you might not even see yourself, right? Like I see this amazing potential and I feel like it's my job to unlock that. It's much easier, you know, and much more efficient to be a bad boss in all honesty, right? Like if you spend zero time asking people, how are you doing? And, you know, having those conversations, you can save a tremendous amount of time. I mean, it's a great productivity hack to be a bad boss because, you know, investing in employees does take a lot of time and a lot of conversations and stuff. But again, everything is the sweet spot, right? Like what's the right amount? You kind of have to decide that for yourself. Before we continue, I just want to tell you a little bit about Mindvalley membership. For all of you personal development junkies like me out there, growing in one area of your life just isn't enough. That's why we made Mindvalley membership to bring you the best personal growth programs on the planet so you can evolve every day in every way. Whether you want to get crazy fit, 
build a business, or manifest more money in your life, there's a quest for that. And now you can access every single one for just $2 a day. So if you're striving to become the best self and live the life you deserve, try out Mindvalley membership at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. I mean, I've had times that I've kind of rejected my own leadership responsibilities because I didn't want to deal with a person and I started relying more on just outsourcing so I could have standard operating procedures as opposed to emotional management that limited the scope of the impact I could make. Like I can do so much working with a team that's at arm's length, but when you truly nurture a team that's aligned, and I think that's even one of the key things you can do as a leader is like building those teams that are true teams, you unlock something different. And I'd love for you to maybe uh, elaborate a little more on that. In terms of unlocking the team, I I think there's a handy framework that we talk about in the last chapter of book about in the book about mastering the inner game of leadership. So the first six chapters are about what you need to do as a leader. And the last chapter is about how you need to be as a leader. It's more sort of internally. And we have found this sort of very helpful framework for a lot of the people that we mentor and coach is to understand leadership through the lens of paradoxes. Because the leadership field is is kind of crazy on a few levels, but one of them is that there's just so much conflicting advice out there, right? If you want to get become a better leader, you start reading up. It's like somebody's going to tell you, you know, you got to act with a lot of urgency. It's like, yeah, but you got to you got to be patient too, and you got to be compassionate and hold people accountable. You got to lead from the front, no lead from the back. It's like you can make yourself crazy. And just wondering, well, which one is it? Is it this or that? And the key insight around paradox is to to understand that all those contradictions are in fact and constructs, not or constructs. It is both of those things. And if you know anything that's challenging about leadership, I think you can set up in your mind like as a pair, right? As that contradiction and put the word and in the middle of it. So just in terms of teams, I mean, part of the challenge of of running teams is like, how much chaos do you tolerate, right? Because sometimes in those sort of brainstorming the magic, like that's where the magic is, right? If you let this meeting go one minute longer, maybe they're going to get that amazing idea. On the other hand, you have to say like, you got to reel it back in. It's like, hey, everybody, we're getting off track. And just to sort of see every problem through that lens of paradoxes, because I will say I've done almost every one of my interviews in person, and I've often been struck by the look in the eyes of the CEOs that I've interviewed. And so many of them seem calm and confident, not arrogant, but just calm and confident. And I've always wondered, like, how do you get to that place? Because to be a CEO, you've got literally 100 things coming at you, you know, every single minute from all different directions. And so how do you stay calm and confident in the middle of that? And I think the most effective CEOs have come to understand leadership as sort of this balance point. You know, the metaphor that I think about is like riding a unicycle. You have to know the balance point, but then sort of flex, you know, side to side, forward or back, depending on the particular circumstance. So maybe there's a moment you need to be compassionate, but then three minutes later in a different meeting, you have to pound the table and hold people accountable. And I think if you understand that balance point, that's a way to stay kind of centered and confident and yet deal with the sort of crazy storms around you. What I really like about what you're teaching here, Adam, is that I've interviewed a few people that you know speak of leadership, that have written some leadership books, and it seems like there's a big lean towards a lot of the modern kind of values of leadership. And you know, to put that in a framework, it's, it's, I find it's very interesting. I'm I'm studying a, a quest we have at Mind Valley with a, an author called Ken Wilber, who speaks about integral theory. 
And he speaks about like the postmodern kind of egalitarian equality being big values. And a lot of them speak about this leadership being like, you know, difference between a leader and a boss. And the boss aspect of leadership is kind of being thrown out the table, like throw the baby with the bathwater. And what I really love what, what you're explaining here is that, no, there's a lot of good that comes from a lot of these traditional frameworks. There's a lot of new frameworks, which are amazing. And speaking of that paradox and the balance, I think actually makes it very comprehensive for people to understand what it takes. The thing about being a boss and a leader or manager, just, and, and I've heard this from so many people, CEOs have sort of shared their early stories with me. And, you know, they say, yeah, before I became a boss, it's like, how hard can this be? Right. You know, you read a couple of psychology books and say, yeah, I got this. And then you get, you get in the middle of these jobs and, you know, there is nothing more complicated than a human being and trying to manage people and, for my corner office series, I look for leadership everywhere, not just CEOs, but I interviewed a, uh, a Broadway production stage manager and, and he had this great expression. He says, you know, everybody's pulling their little red wagon behind them into work. Right. And, you know, by that means like all the sort of life stuff and look, we're all neurotic and weird and complicated and we've all dealt with adversity in some levels. And a lot of people bring that stuff into work and, Again, it is it is the hardest thing. I, I have so much respect for people who lead well. I really do. And it's it's such an art form. Why do you think most of us demonize CEOs, aside from just the fact that they get compensated so much? It seems like we paint a target on their backs very easily. Yeah, a lot of them don't help themselves. And and the you know, the good leaders often don't get the headlines, right? The headlines we read are about like, you know, the WeWork founder and you know, charging $6 million just to use the, to license back the word we to the company or something. I mean, all that makes for great stories. And, you know, I don't think the compensation consultants necessarily help the CEOs because there are these sort of ridiculous packages that just kind of make you erode trust in them. When I have done all my hundreds of interviews over the years, I've worked very hard to find people who I thought were good leaders. And, in my mind, you need to separate just because someone's successful doesn't necessarily mean they are a good leader, right? Mm -hmm. Just through that lens of results. But there's just a lot of phone throwers out there, right? There's a lot of bad bosses. There's way too many bad bosses. And I, I've spent some time, you know, wondering, like, why are there so many bad bosses? <laughs> and I think part of it is that, first of all, leadership is really hard, right? But I think what happens because it's so hard and when people start doing it for the first time, you know, you can go into it, it's like kind of respecting how hard it is and sort of get pulled into the nuances and maybe flounder around a bit. So I think a lot of people say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be one of those people. I'm going to have my leadership style. I'm going to adopt a leadership style. And then everybody needs to accommodate me. And by the way, the world needs to accommodate me. And what happens, you sort of go in with that and then you encounter complicated human beings and a disruptive world and you're going to get frustrated. So you sort of double down on it and say, no, no, this is my leadership style. And it's like, that just doesn't work. And it's going to work less and less well in, you know, now and in the future, because younger generations are going to, are, I think there's less of a tolerance of bad bosses. I think a lot more companies are getting religion around rooting out bad bosses and putting in sort of frameworks and ecosystems to find out who is the bad boss, because that didn't always happen. So at least I'm somewhat bullish on the idea that over time, there are going to be fewer bad bosses. Call me an optimist, Jason. 
I appreciate the optimism and I would agree as well. I think that, you know, the responsibility being to all stakeholders beyond just the shareholders is putting a lot more accountabilities on leaders, managers, CEOs, all of it. And uh, I think the tide is swinging this way. So I'm, maybe I'd love to close with this question, which is someone who picks up your book, you know, what's the transformation you're excited to see in someone that picks up your book? The feedback that I've heard that I'm hoping other people experience is that they sort of wear out their highlighter going through it. And there's just a lot, you know, I've always stuck to a very specific currency, if you will, in talking about leadership. You know, there's a lot of leadership theories out there. I break out in hives when I hear the phrase leadership theory, because I'm not sure you can have a theory of leadership. But what I always stick to are three things, which is stories, insights, and then a third category of like tools, tips, frameworks, takeaways, things that you can immediately put into action. And to me, that's how you need to talk about leadership, because it's the stories that bring themes to life and make them real and memorable. It's the insights that make you feel like, okay, I just got a bit smarter about how the world works. And it's tips, tools, and frameworks to say, okay, I now know how to put this in action at that meeting that I'm going to Monday. So that's, to me, a win. And ultimately, what gets me out of bed in the morning is that this idea, like, I, I think leadership can just have this incredible leverage effect, like good and great leaders can lift all the people around them and bad leaders can really demotivate and cause a lot of stress for their teams. And so what I'm motivated by is this idea that if somebody is, you know, starts their first management role when they're 35, let's say, and is a manager and leader for the next 30 years, we know just through trial and error and experience that they're going to learn a few things over that 30 years, right? So what I'm trying to do in all the work that I do is to try and shorten that learning curve. And to share all the sort of accumulated practical wisdom from all the hundreds of CEOs I've, I've interviewed so that that 35-year-old manager who's just starting out can say, you know, maybe I haven't seen this movie before, but I've read about this movie before and I know how to navigate it because of what I've read. So that's kind of my goal. Probably a longer answer than you wanted, but that's my goal. It's perfect. Adam, thank you so much for your time and sharing some of the insights here for everybody listening in. I mean, for me, what I love the most is the fact that guess what? One of the highest demanding positions you can have in the company is of course, being the CEO. And it's not like it was a couple of years ago, as Adam was saying, the demands are getting more and more intense, whether it's the public facing, the interior employee demands, or just the changing landscape of business in general, there are more pressures. And so how do you survive through this? I love that when the book, they're actually covering so many of the key things that you need to focus on, because of course, being focused is a big element of your leadership, because there's so many things you could do, but how do you find the core things that really make a difference? We've had the chance to talk about how developing cultures, developing values, not just throwing them on a wall, but how do you live them? And the fact that the CEO has to be the one that lives them the strongest because it's going to trickle down across the culture. Now, some of you might be listening and saying, well, I'm not a CEO, but no matter which position you're in in a company, if you're leading in any capacity, you might as well hold yourself to the highest standard, which is the standard of a CEO. We talked about building the better teams. We talked about you know, the inner game of leadership that is going to be necessary. And yes, there are a lot of demands that come to you as the leader, as the CEO. But being able to truly listen, you know, build the right teams, being able to lead through that transformation and building an incredible culture are some of the core things that you need to be doing. And when you do it with excellence, we're going to see that organizations get to thrive, survive, and we have more and more mature organizations that are going to be more responsible for things in our society. 
there are problems in society today in our lives and corporations play a big role either in creating the problems or solving them. And I have a feeling that more people that can pick up a book such as what Adam has put together, which is the CEO test, master the challenges that make or break all leaders is going to help a lot of organizations shift into problem solvers, not problem creators. Adam, once again, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure. Great. Thanks so much, Jason. Appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if you haven't signed up already, be sure to check out Mindvalley membership. Besides getting unlimited access to our top-rated programs and trainers, you'll also join an incredible supportive community on our new Connections app. This is basically a global campus where you find like-minded friends, mentors, and accountability partners from around the world online or get together at local meetups. If you want education that connects you with kindred spirits and transforms you from the inside out, Join the tribe at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman today. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.